Then there is this footnote. One night in 1985, I was drinking Gibson's with T-Bone Burnett in a Sunset Boulevard hotel, which was known locally as La Mondrian. It was obviously the very, very definite article. It was nearly closing time, and we were plotting the next day of King of America, sessions over gin and onions, when the man who had been entertaining a group of friends with what seemed like alternate, mildly risque lyrics to a few show tunes came over and introduced himself as Michael Feinstein. I'd heard the name, but wasn't completely familiar with his work, nor did I realize that he was such a dedicated and valuable archivist, or such a connoisseur of obscure songs from the Great American Songbook. Frankly, when he told me that he had worked as an assistant to Ira Gershwin, I thought he was putting me on. He really seemed too young. It is perhaps a consequence of George Gershwin's demise at the age of 39 that even an admirer of his brother's lyrics hadn't fully registered that Ira Gershwin had lived into the early 1980s. It was in those last years when Michael had been working as his assistant that Mr. Gershwin had been intrigued by a reference in the New York Times to a song he had written with his brother. It was right there alongside the names of Cole Porter and Irving Berlin in the review of Imperial Bedroom. Ira was curious enough to request that Michael obtain a copy of the album right away in the annals of wild critical overstatement. This one takes the biscuit, but I suppose it was a step up from being compared to Freddie and the Dreamers. At the time, it emboldened my rather bewildered record company to advertise Imperial Bedroom with the sales pitch masterpiece in the recipe book of disasters that comes shortly before the instruction First, take your lion, insert foot, insert leg, repeat with the other limbs until fully consumed. Meanwhile, I can only imagine the horror on Mr. Gershwin's face when he was confronted with the howling and screaming that precedes man out of time and wonder how long it was before he tore the needle from the groove and tossed the record across the room in despair at what the present generation had made of his brilliant brother's legacy. Mr. Feinstein was far too tactful to elaborate on the actual reaction, but having read some of the annotations in Ira Gershwin's volume of published lyrics, I think I can imagine the worst. After all the fanfare and folderol, we still had to go out and play the songs as before. We had no means to hire orchestras for the live performances, so Steve Naive recreated his parts for 
and in every home and town crier on an emulator keyboard which reproduced a passable facsimile of a string section and was to 1982 what the Mellotron had been to 1967 until every combo on the block purchased one and all the bands started to sound the same. I obviously had to abandon all the meticulously arranged overlapping vocal arrangements and return to singing the songs just as they were when newly written. Fortunately, the cohesion and all-around excellence of the attractions as a live band at this time had us delivering songs pretty vividly. Some of the songs ended up traveling through two or even three contrasting versions. The raw demo sketches, the elaborately decorated studio creation, and finally, the live rendition. We were out at the racetrack in Minneapolis in 1982, having played our set shortly after Duran Duran and prior to the headliners for the day, Blondie. The message had been repeated throughout the day. Don't leave. Bob is on his way and wants to see you. We'd been through this scene before, in 1978, in Amsterdam, when the entire front row of the Carré Theatre had been reserved for Mr. Dillon, and we'd ended up playing to a row of empty chairs. This time, I was assured it would be different. We were a mere 200 miles from heaven. It was almost a hometown gig. There was no sign of Bob by showtime, and he still hadn't appeared. By the time we came off stage, I figured it was all a put-on by a local comedian. But then another call was relayed to the festival office. Bob's on his way. Don't leave. I wandered over to watch Blondie close the afternoon. Their drummer, Clem Burke, was always quick with the greeting, and I'd briefly met Debbie and Chris when I'd first come to New York. We'd all been on the charts in England at around the same time, that bizarre interlude during which my cartoon likeness appeared in a teenage girl's magazine alongside pinup shops of the boys from Blondie. There were certain measurements and calculations that were Hard not to make that day. I saw a lot of people in their entourage walking backward while yelling into two-way radios and everybody in the band appearing to be in their own little box of tricks. Unfortunately, that was the way it sounded when they hit the stage. It made me sad to see it winding down this way, so I started once again to make my exit. The promoter's rep called over. You're not leaving now, are you? We've just heard. Bob will be right over. Now I was sure it was a prank. The attractions had long since taken off, but I found someone to talk to until I heard what sounded like the finale of Blondie set in the distance. Now it was surely time to go, or I'd be caught in the departing crowd for hours. I felt a little crestfallen and foolish, but the promoter's man called for a vehicle. 
to ferry me back to my hotel. My foot was already on the running board when a white minivan without windows pulled up in the dust at some speed. The side door swung open, and there was Bob Dylan waving for me to join his merry band. I was barely inside and clinging on the back of the driver's seat as we pulled away at top speed. The people in the vehicle looked like a group of friends that might have been on a fishing trip. One gentleman was in a wheelchair, hence the unconventional mode of transport, and the rest of us were standing or crouching as the van bumped over the dusty parade ground and onto the road back into town. This was only my second meeting with Dylan, so I really didn't expect myself to be invited into this kind of company. Aside from a few courtesies and introductions, I felt wary that I was intruding or that I'd start talking nonsense in this odd proximity. Bob quickly took care of my being ill at ease by asking a voice that sounded absurdly like that of Bob Dylan. So, is that watching the detectives a real show? My mind was racing now. Surely this was all the wrong way around. Wasn't I supposed to be doing the asking? Something along the lines of, So, Bob, where are the gates of Eden? I can't recall what I said in answer to the question, but the conversation quickly turned to guitar players we both liked. It turned out that we'd both been invited to a late-night warehouse party at the loft of one of the Minneapolis film crew with whom I'd made several videos at the turn of the decade, and we made an agreement that I would meet Bob at a certain address at 10 p.m. sharp that night. Before long, I found myself back on the pavement by myself outside the Marquette Hotel, wondering if I'd imagined the entire episode Naturally, I thought it would be the last I'd see of him, so I went to have a little supper to bide my time. I ran into an old sweetheart dining with her mother. She looked beautiful that night, and everything seemed like a song. My cab pulled into the parking lot of the warehouse right at the stroke of ten. There didn't seem to be anyone around at first. But then I heard someone hail me. I looked over, and there was Bob Dylan, standing next to a line of young teenagers, propped on the hood of an old car. The lads were introduced to me and shook my hand. That was the first time I'd met Jesse and Jacob Dylan, both of whom I've come to know as fine gentlemen. I assumed that the third young man was their brother Samuel. The brothers headed home, and their father and I went up to the party. I soon discovered that it is not that easy to have a private conversation with Bob Dylan in public view. Even by the polite, relaxed standards of Minnesota, people had a hard time pretending not to eavesdrop. I knew I could be an arrogant bastard back then, and pretty much thought I knew it all. But I had a couple of questions 
that I genuinely wanted to ask this master songwriter, none of them involving directions to Eden. Mostly, I wanted to know how it was possible to remain invisible enough to observe the very transactions between people that were the substance of so many of my songs, and for that matter, his. Our voices dropped lower and lower, so as to remain out of earshot, and the words fell further and further apart and started to make no sense, and the conversation ground to a halt without me receiving any reply that I can now recall. I just had to look around to get my answer. It was time to cut out.